This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. This is episode 38. I have Mark Greenow on the show. He is historian and tour supervisor at the Virginia State Capitol. This is part two of the conversation that I had with him. Uh, Part one, you'll find on episode 37. Uh, I suggest you go back and check it out. Uh, it's you know, it's not like you're not going to understand what's happening here, um, but it's somewhat chronological. That first episode, uh, well, not first, but 37 is about uh, the you know, pre-secession Virginia and the effects on on the, this Virginia state capital and. And, uh, and and how we get to secession and a little beyond. Uh, this is more about the actual Virginia State Capitol building during the war uh, and, and after the war and how that affected the building, right? How, how, did, how did all these folks function in one building together with, with all these varying legislatures and, I mean, almost a full federal and definitely a full state government in that one building at the same time? Uh, but again, you don't you won't be completely lost if you don't go back and check out episode thirty seven. But you should do it anyways, um, and and also check out episode five. Right, that's uh, the first time Mark was on the show uh, where he actually talked about the capital of Virginia being moved to Richmond from Williamsburg. If you have never been to the Virginia State Capitol, you need to go. It is fantastic. It's open from Monday through Saturday, eight o'clock till five o'clock with guided tours available from nine to four on Sundays. You're going to find that it's open from one to five, right? Guided tours from one to four. It's a, I mean, it really is amazing. It's a museum, uh, a history museum. It's an art museum, right? They have the only statue that George Washington ever posed for. That's pretty awesome. Um, and it's free, right? It's still the house of government. It is your Virginia state capital, right? If you are a Virginia state citizen or a citizen of the Commonwealth of Virginia, excuse me. Uh, if you have any large groups, call ahead. But otherwise, just go down there. Just go do it. Again, it's free. Come on now. Okay, on a little bit more of a somber note, uh, I did hear of the passing of Kevin Grants, um, who was a local actor and historian. Uh, most people knew him, like I did, as uh, George Washington from the reenactments at St. John's Church in Churchill. Uh, he normally played George. Uh, he was sort of looked like him and kind of what you'd think he might sound like. He did a great job. I, I saw him there do it a, a number of times. But I actually spent time with him because uh, he, he's one of the first people that I interviewed for this show on episode three. Uh, he was actually portraying Patrick Henry. He stays in character the entire time. Well, about 10 seconds he comes out, if that much. Um but it was really amazing, you know, with my, you know, ridiculous questions that I was asking him. I mean, he did a fantastic job as Patrick Henry. I was really impressed. Um, it's really amazing, right? Just uh, from the beginning of the show, you know, I just thought that was uh, a little touching. If you, if you want to check it out, go see uh, episode three with Patrick Henry. My thoughts go out to Kevin's family and friends, you know, everybody over at St. John's. But, uh, you know, he, he lost a, a, a you know, really great actor, guy with an immense uh, knowledge of, of history. Um, but, it, you know, it meant a lot to me as, uh, you know, starting out this podcast and nobody's before anyone was actually listening. And he decided he would take the time and, you know, treated it like it was something. Um, so, you know, let's, let's go ahead and uh, celebrate. 
celebrate his great talents and you know go check out that episode uh he again he did a fantastic job go check it out the sound quality is not that great i've definitely come far 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 uh as far as the sound quality of the introduction of the show <laughs> but um all right let, let me know what you think about the show uh whether it's episode three episode five episode 37 or 38 the one you're listening to right now you can let me know on uh jeff major j-e-f-f-m-a-j-e-r at history replays today.org uh at history replays on twitter facebook or tumblr history replays today on pinterest uh but anyways i started out actually getting a little dangerous sort of a Probably a silly question um, to ask Mark Greeno something about just something I had heard someone told me, and I had nothing to back it up. And that is, of course, you're you're. It was a hundred percent accurate, or or maybe not. But let's hear. It. Let's hear. It. Someone told me this one time, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but that um, this during the Civil War, the only time the Virginia State Legislature was full time at some sort of incident where. I think it was maybe in the first Petersburg campaign where the Confederates legislature just scattered. They got scared and left. So that the Virginia State Legislature... That sounds like the Peninsula campaign when General McClellan's Army of the Potomac was approaching in the uh, spring of 1862. Okay. And uh, the Congress stampeded. Okay. And, um, I mean, you can tell already that (laughs) from the secondhand story, it's it's gone about fifthhand in my head at this point. But, um... The, the the Virginia State Legislature apparently at that point began to meet continuously in order to well, kind of reassure the, the citizens. The, the Commonwealth of Virginia's state legislature, the General Assembly, mm-hmm. has been from its institution in 1619, mm-hmm. has been a part-time legislature. And it continued to be a part-time legislature throughout the American Civil War, which you notice, though, is because of the force of public business that a war creates. Mm-hmm. They were meeting ever more frequently than they normally would have been meeting in peacetime with you know extra sessions and additional sessions. But they did not become a full-time assembly. They were just meeting with a lot of extra sure. uh, days. Okay. And, you know, their, their agenda got real thick and full, and so they spent more time here than they normally would. But they were periodically leaving and coming back and okay. leaving and coming back, as was the Confederate government. Sure. You know, the Congress would be here and then adjourn and come back and adjourn and come back. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people have assumed, as it turns out incorrectly, that the capital of Virginia was set up as a public timeshare, you know, right. where, you know, the Virginia legislature will use it in January and the Confederate legislature will use it in February. And then, you know, but right. nothing like that was ever worked out. Uh, the two legislatures met when they needed to. Right. And I've been able to find at least 363 days during the Civil War years when the General Assembly of Virginia and the Congress of the Confederacy were in the same building at the same time. Wow. Um, and I guess if there's anything we know about politicians, you're going to know they're there. Yeah. If they're meeting you, oh, yeah. you yeah. know they're there. Yeah. Um, and the uh, – so and I guess, you know, speaking of these guys, they have having elections throughout the whole war, mm-hmm. right? And so um, Jefferson Davis and um, – uh, Adelaide Stevens are appointed president of Richmond. That's a really good point uh, to bring out. Uh, in 1861, the Confederacy pulls itself together with a provisional Congress mm-hmm. and a provisional executive branch. 
And what they are doing is not unlike what American patriots did at the beginning of the American Revolution. Uh, at the beginning of the American Revolution, we had to throw together some kind of a wartime ad hoc national government, mm-hmm. so we created the Continental Congress. Right. And the Continental Congress was unicameral. It was one single body right. um, it, to get us up and running and under wartime circumstances. Mm-hmm. The Confederate Congress is sort of the same thing. Let's pull together a provisional single unicameral body under wartime circumstances, well, what become wartime circumstances, mm-hmm. but we're going to call it provisional because we want to have, say, the Southern Nationalists, mm-hmm. a regular national election which we can't hope to pull off until November of 1861. We're going to need time to set up the infrastructure. So the president is provisional. The vice president is provisional, appointed by the provisional Congress mm-hmm. as an up-and-running you know, temporary right. legislature. So in November 1861, there is a general election throughout the wartime South mm-hmm. to choose officially uh, a president and a vice president. Oh, it's as early as April? Uh, is November. Uh, November, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I mean, the, the Southerners are copying the old uh, principles of the old Union as much. Well, you're supposed to have a general election in November. Sure. Everybody knows that, so right. ours is going to be in November. Right. That's when you vote for president. So, right. you know, this, so they didn't change that. <laughs> so November 1861, here's what Confederate wartime voters can do. They can choose a president and vice president, mm-hmm. and they can choose a congressman, and they can choose a senator. Because the Provisional Congress understands it will evolve into a bicameral Congress with a House and a Senate to be just like the U.S. Congress. Right. Because that's what it's supposed to be, because that's the tradition. Sure. So by February 1862, you have newly elected members of the House of Representatives mm-hmm. meeting on the second floor of the Capitol. You have newly elected state senators meeting on the third floor of the Capitol. And... There is a do-over inauguration right. for Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens mm-hmm. because they can now be inaugurated not as provisional executive officers but as duly elected executive officers. Right. And on the 22nd of February, 1862, an outdoor inauguration ceremony is conducted for Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens and Davis gives an inauguration address, and they stand on a big platform right in front of the George Washington Equestrian Monument, mm-hmm. which had been unveiled uh, just four years before. Right. And the platform has red, white, and blue bunting on it, mm-hmm. and they are doing the inauguration on the 22nd of February. Why the 22nd of February? It's George Washington's birthday. Right. Well, why George Washington's birthday? Because the Southern Nationalists looked to George Washington as their uh, exemplar of what they were trying to do all over again. Right. You know, to the idea of a committed Confederate, this is the second American Revolution mm-hmm. that um, the government had resulted to the injury and oppression of the Southern people, and so they uh, have created a new government through the right of revolution, just like the American patriots had done against British tyranny in 1776. You know, that's how the wartime Southerners, nationalists, see it. So with great conscious uh, ceremony, they inaugurate Jefferson Davis as the father of his country 
on George Washington's birthday next to George Washington's statue. This is not a casual coincidence. Sure. Yeah. And I understand it was raining as well. It was raining. Uh, one, uh, one witness looking from inside the Capitol on the proceedings said that they saw a sea of umbrellas. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, ceremony was a bit soggy. But, you know, Davis made reference to, you know, the American Revolution and to George Washington as part of his second inauguration uh, speech. And while we're on this business of George Washington, I think it's really fascinating to realize how Washington was fully embraced not only by committed Confederates, but by patriotic Yankees. Yeah. Uh, and this speaks to an interesting political and cultural situation uniquely felt in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Virginia had two sort of themes by which she could identify herself. Mm -hmm. There were two elements of Virginia's psychology uh, on the eve of the American Civil War. One element was the pride of their revolutionary tradition for fighting for independence against uh, the British uh, tyranny. Right. And literally winning the War of American Independence on the sacred soil of Virginia at Yorktown. Sure. The final big battle that turns the world upside down and guarantees the existence of the United States was won in Virginia Mm -hmm. with George Washington in command as the sword of the revolution. Sure. So you have that theme that informs Virginia's self-identity. And then you have another theme. Once the revolution is done, any Virginian before the Civil War would proudly tell you, mm -hmm. who, who makes sure that we will survive as a nation? Right. George Washington. Sure. He is the indispensable man. When he finishes being the sword of the revolution, he becomes the father of our country. Um, he's first in war, but he's first in peace right. as well. And so Virginia gloried in her tradition of providing executive officers before the Civil War who doubled the size of the Union sure. with the Louisiana Purchase, who brought Florida into the Union mm -hmm. uh, to enlarge uh, the United States, who set the stage for the admission of Texas into the Union, right. um, all these nation-building uh, traditions that Virginia presidents had shown uh, sure. the nation. So on the one hand, Virginians say, we believe in the right of revolution to create a new nation on the field of battle. And we also celebrate uh, Virginia's role in building up a more perfect union sure. under a federal constitution. A more perfect union uh, comes from a document that we associate with James Madison. Sure. You know, the father of the federal constitution. Right. So that helps to explain two things. Mm -hmm. First of all, why Virginians were so internally conflicted about whether or not to secede from the Union. Sure. Even after the war started. Right. Uh, because those who celebrate Washington as a statesman and the father of his country don't want to leave the Union. Right. No matter what. But those who celebrate Washington as the sword of independence mm -hmm. and a revolutionary fighter say, we did it before, we can do it again. Sure. And that explains how um, patriotic Northerners who want to preserve the Union could rally around George Washington with the same level of confidence and fervor as the most uh, committed Confederates. Yeah. So what could be better to explain the dynamics of an American Civil War than to have Northerners and Southerners pointing to the same hero as being on their side? Sure, sure. 
It'd be pretty strange if your first president was from a foreign country, or <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, or the person that wrote your Declaration of Independence is from a foreign country. Right. I mean, that's a yeah, that would be a strange situation. It's definitely weird. Yeah. You know, you have to you have to kind of find those keep those guys on your side. <laughs> At least some of them. Yeah. Um, and that statue also becomes what the the, the state seal of the Confederacy. The outdoor well. equestrian statue, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the Confederate Congress took their time in a series of debates to define what this seal of the Confederacy would be. Okay. But by 1863, they had figured it out that it would be a drawing in profile of the equestrian bronze Washington statue sitting outside on the grounds of Capitol Square where Davis had been inaugurated the previous year. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the seal of the Confederate States of America, you see the Washington Equestrian Monument. You see 22 February 1862 as the official birth date of the Confederate nation. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see, of course, you need to have a Latin motto. Nothing's official unless you have a... (laughs) So Dio Vendici... Uh, is the Latin motto on the Confederate seal, which essentially means God as our defender, or God will defend us. Okay. Or, you know, basically God is on our side. Yeah. Is the implication. Right, sure. Yeah. Oh, and for good uh, additional value, the seal shows depictions of corn, wheat, and cotton, and probably rice. Mm-hmm. You know, the staple agricultural crops of the Southern Confederacy are thrown in. Right. And so that's on all the like official yeah. documents, right? Yeah, after the like, spring of 1863, that is intended to be the seal. But they had to find an engraver to create the seal. Okay. They actually went overseas all and right. found an English engraver, I think, to do it. Then they were trying to get the seal back into the Confederacy by blockade running, and it got as far as Nassau, evidently. But I'm not sure it ever... Uh, how far it got beyond that. It may not have actually landed in the Confederacy during the war. Oh, so they never actually used it? Uh, at least in the sense of... Of standing it. On, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not so sure that huh. it ever quite got that far. How about that? Because um, I've often, often thought about how it's sort of a weird poetic aspect of, that goes beyond, like even what you were saying, is because it's a, a half-built statue at that time. Yeah. Right? So it's almost like, you know, we need to continue building the country... You know, this confederacy as we're building, um, which I don't know if anybody thought of that, but it's a nice little poetic yeah. thing. That well, as, as you can well imagine, once the Civil War hit full force uh, and Virginia became the veritable eye of the storm mm-hmm. once the capital of the South was moved here, and, of course, the Virginia forests and fields bore a heavier brunt of battlefield fighting than any other southern state. Right. That work on completing the equestrian Washington came to a complete halt. Nothing was done on it. But it's also fascinating that after Appomattox, as Virginia is trying to rise up from the ashes of defeat mm-hmm. in very unfavorable economic circumstances, the government of Virginia makes an explicit choice. Well, it's time to go back to that equestrian monument and finish it. Right. And under less than ideal circumstances, you see the additional bronze pieces uh, the little trophy allegorical monuments and the additional pedestrian monuments slowly and surely arriving from overseas uh, in uh, the late 1860s, and it's completed by 1869. Right, um, which uh, most of the city was not completed at that point. Yeah, right? it was taking, you know, Virginia, uh, Richmond was rebuilding by then, but was still rebuilding. Sure, right, right. Um, With a lot of infusion of northern capital. 
Right, absolutely. Because Richmond had been an important trading partner with Northern economic interests before the war, and Northerners in the economy of the North were interested to revive that lucrative trade. Sure. So a lot of investment to rebuild Richmond after Appomattox came from Northern capital. Right, absolutely. And the... um it also plays a pretty good, the capital grounds themselves, a pretty um, large role in the bread riots. Right, well, or for all kinds of public gatherings, uh, celebratory or uh, uh, remonstrating. And, so, and would that have been that common, I guess, just for people? Because well, I know Capitol now, Square you have was to get the, a permit nowadays. Well, yes. Right? But, but the, the neat thing about it is, in speaking in the 21st century, if a group or organization wants to have a rally or a protest or a celebration of an anniversary or some event Mm -hmm. of interest to them, there is a formal online application process with the Department of General Services, and these uh, applications are routinely approved. And you're put on the calendar, and you say how many people you expect to bring and when you'll be there, and you're given a right to use the southwest corner, which is a natural amphitheater with the bell tower. And the Capitol Police will be alerted to you know an event with mm-hmm. an estimated 200 people or whatever right. it is, and it's the proverbial uh, well-regulated and safe uh, First Amendment soapbox opportunity. Sure. And there's more uh, regulation of it now, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's uh, it's a more formal process, but it happens. Sure. Now, in the 19th century, um, before and during the Civil War. The Richmond population knew that Capitol Square was an inviting place and public park. Uh, it was common before and during the Civil War to see band concerts taking place on Capitol Square, hmm. uh, and uh, you know that was a popular pastime and tradition. By, by the paid for by the state, or just bands would just come. Or in it could be uh, well originally, uh, you know, local based bands mm-hmm. uh, pro- um, providing music in peacetime for citizens. But as the war came along, you could find no shortage of military bands. Oh right, uh, okay, that, fair that, enough. They yeah. could muster in, in play, and the Capitol Square uh, below the Capitol is fairly steeply pitched. Mm-hmm. Behind the Capitol then and now. It's a very flat area. And that area behind the Capitol was a perfect uh, muster and drill ground for Mm -hmm. training troops. And so there were a lot of military musters, drills, and parades on the northern side of Capitol Square, which the public would generally turn out to watch. Okay. And then the band concerts tended to be held down on the slopes, you know, in the amphitheater-type setting. Sure. So people knew. And then in addition to these kind of routine events... You had the occasional spontaneous events of larger scale. When the news came in on the victory of Southern troops at the First Battle of Manassas or Mm -hmm. the First Battle of Bull Run, Mm -hmm. there was this spontaneous huge gathering on the grounds of Capitol Square around the south portico of the Capitol and and cheering and festivities and so on that just sort of organically happened. Right. Nobody filed a permit in advance to get clearance from DGS. (laughs) It just happened. Right, sure. And then, as you point out, one of the most celebrated mob events was the bread riot at the beginning of April 1863 Yeah, when largely a group of women to start with who were destitute and feeling mm-hmm. the pinch of poverty assembled on the square with the idea of going to the governor's mansion which is still standing today sure, uh, and getting the governor to promise some kind of public relief and that didn't happen so they got angry and they marched out of the square and headed south down into the business and commercial district, and it turned into a free-for-all riot 
where you had suddenly a lot more people than just the women involved right. in taking advantage of the chaos to walk off with foodstuffs and luxury sure. goods and everything else. Right, which folks were quite deprived of. Yeah. That I think uh, Richmond, I mean, I think it's kind of gone over uh, on a few episode, other episodes, and um, especially one that's uh, about a... Um, I don't even know what I'm going to say that, but I don't know which one's coming first. But, um, yeah, it was tough. It was terrible here. You know, it just seems like it was not a good place to be, the this, this city, I mean, during the Civil War. I mean, it was not a boring place to be. There was plenty of excitement everywhere. Uh, but safety was sometimes at a premium. Uh, luxury items were selling at a premium. Mm-hmm. And space uh, for public and private purposes was at a premium. Sure. Uh, it was difficult to get adequate supplies of clean drinking water right. uh, in a city known for the, nice. the muddy river uh, James. And, you know, the gas works were taxed uh, beyond their capacity. Mm-hmm. So it was a challenge sure. for people in Richmond. And, um, and I guess you, you kind of uh, brushed on a little bit, but as the, I guess, we, I guess you kind of skipped over the, the actual fall you know, the rebuilding, um, when... The great conflagration. Yeah, are the... How, how long does it... The I mean, fire. Most of these folks are here up until April 2nd, right? I mean, yeah. when... I mean, it seems it seems like when, you know, Lee sends this, this word that you have to evacuate Richmond, almost like just letting the air out of a balloon, right? All these, everybody is, is just... There's a mass exodus uh, when they get word from General Lee that, you know, the Petersburg front has collapsed, which means he can no longer defend or protect Richmond. Right. And the Confederate Army pulls out uh, to try and consolidate uh, the Confederate forces around Richmond with the Confederate forces leaving Petersburg to, you know, get the Army back together and on the move. Because the Army of Northern Virginia, when it was able to move and maneuver, uh, was, uh, you know, a formidable thing to Mm -hmm. behold. And... There's all kinds of drama in Richmond as Confederate troops pull out. Under military authority, Confederate retreating troops set selective fires Mm -hmm. to public property in Richmond owned by the government. Uh, The uh, tobacco warehouses with government-owned tobacco, which was a form of wealth in itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, The munitions uh, plant uh, was set afire. And the um, government-owned uh, armory was set on fire, which was next to the privately-owned Tredegar Ironworks, which was right. not set on fire right. because it was not government property. And the owner, Mr. Anderson, had his workers drawn up to defend the property against anybody who wanted to set fire to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bridges were deliberately set on fire right. uh, crossing the James River. The shipbuilding center down there just below the great Shiplock Park of Mm -hmm. modern times, was set on fire. And that is what was intended. What will happen is you should not play with fire on a windy day, and you should not play with fire by igniting things that are highly explosive, like munitions. And And anyone that's listening to this, just don't play with fire. Yeah, yeah. Just don't play with fire. Just leave it alone. No matter what the conditions are. Yeah, right. Do not do this at home. (laughs) Do not recreate the uh, Richmond conflagration. So uh, these fires quickly spread uh, out of control. Right. And at a time when local authority is utterly collapsing mm-hmm. and everybody's doing their best to get out of town. Absolutely. So why doesn't all of Richmond burn up? Why doesn't uh, America's oldest executive mansion burn up? Why doesn't uh, the oldest 
classical temple-style public building in the New World, our capital. Why doesn't it uh, burn up? Why doesn't the Bell Tower burn up on Capitol Square? Um, because the two things, as far as the public buildings that I just mentioned, Capitol Square was a place of safe refuge for people fleeing the frames. Right. So if you're trying to get out of the what becomes known as the burnt district, the financial, commercial, industrial section along the waterfront below Capitol Square, mm-hmm. you head uphill to the open grounds of Capitol Square where there aren't buildings right next to each other, right next to each other for the domino effect to occur. Sure. So you have some measure of safety in a 12-acre open public park. Right. And you can make sure that the Capitol and the Bell Tower and the mansion don't go up in smoke. Right. Uh, unfortunately... One public building that did go up in smoke was on the far southeast corner of Capitol Square, and it was housing a large number of the county court records from all over Virginia, Uh and they are known to this day as the burned counties because a lot of priceless historical information went up in smoke when that uh, state courthouse burned up in 1865. So that's one lamentable loss. But down below the square with uh, banks going up in smoke and warehouses and factories and all those things being burned, the reason the whole city wasn't consumed is because of the arrival, ironically, of Union troops. Sure. Uh, This is a civilian soldier army. Mm -hmm. Uh, These people came from civilian walks of life to gather into the army. So is the Confederate Army. It's a citizen soldier army, north and south. You had a whole bunch of people who were firefighters uh, oh, right, yeah. that arrived on the scene. And so Union soldiers who had firefighting talents were banded together, and they put the flames out right. to contain uh, the fire to the point that it would not spread any further than it did. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I was saying that, you know, um, I guess... First thing, the legislators, they have any idea where they're going? Or are they, you know, they going to go to <laughs> Well, they're supposed to, or? yeah, the, the Confederate lawmakers were supposed to go to Danville. And right. for a few days, there were, at least Davis and his cabinet and some lawmakers, perhaps, uh, were temporarily in Danville for just a few days. The governor of Virginia, who in 1865 was William Extra Billy Smith, right. who had uh, taken over in 1864 from Honest John Lesher, Mm -hmm. Uh, at the end of Fletcher's term, uh, said that the state authorities will re-rendezvous at Lynchburg. Well, that was an intention that was never fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, But it's not like everybody's like, come on, team. I mean, everyone, you have to figure out your own own way. Like, the legislature is not like, you know, I guess Davis is out on a train. Well, uh, because the the Confederate train... No, see, here's the thing. Uh, The Confederate Congress had adjourned in March... Okay, all right. So the Congress of the Confederacy was not in town when Richmond collapsed. And I'd have to go back and double-check for sure to find out whether the General Assembly was meeting when Richmond collapsed. I'm not sure if they were in session or not. Yeah, so I'm just going to clip in just here just for a second. Uh, Mark went and checked it out uh, and after the conversation. And he, he was right, actually. The, the Virginia State Legislature was actually out of town as well when the city fell. Um, so the Virginia and the Confederate Legislatures, both out of town. All right, back to the conversation. Just wanted to make sure we clear that up. But they're also, um, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but if they're, they're also criminals at that point, right? The, in the, the eyes of the Union, Union authorities... authorities 
right. <clears throat> Confederate lawmakers are not uh, legitimate public men in legitimate public offices. But I'm saying even these the state the state legislators as well, right? Because uh, well, not... in the eyes of the Lincoln administration, they don't want to recognize the Virginia General Assembly right. of Richmond, and they don't want to recognize Governor um, William Smith because they don't have to. Right. Here's another little interesting uh, sidebar of the American Civil War, uh, Virginia being one of the most complex political histories of the 1860s of any of the southern states. Mm-hmm. There were two Virginia state governments existing simultaneously right. uh, as the war got underway. Mm-hmm. You had the Virginia Assembly with, no, with 202 members meeting in Richmond at the Capitol building, and you had you know John Letcher and later... William Smith as governors, and also you had uh, originally meeting in Wheeling in what is now West Virginia, and then later meeting in Alexandria just across the Potomac from Washington, D.C. proper, you had something called the Restored Government of Virginia, and it had uh, a governor, Francis Pierpont. Mm -hmm. It had a small number of state delegates and state senators, Mm -hmm. uh, less than 20 uh, delegates, less than 20 senators, uh, that purported to speak for all of Virginia as the true and loyal restored government. So this was the government which by 1865 was meeting in Alexandria that Mm -hmm. the Lincoln administration understood to be the government of Virginia. So are they reinstated? And it it was that government that restored government that blessed the division of Virginia into Virginia and West Virginia. Right. Because the United States Constitution uh, provides in one of its articles for a process where an existing state can be subdivided to create a new state. Mm -hmm. And that is perfectly legal if you have the permission of the state government of the existing state Sure. Uh, for part of that state to get carved off and become a new state. Uh, a peacetime, unchallenged example of that is when the Virginia authorities agreed to the creation of Kentucky. Sure. Which also calls itself a commonwealth, having mm-hmm. once been a part of Virginia. Right. So what do you do if a large portion of northern and western Virginia wants to break off in order to get back into the Union? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to get the permission of the General Assembly meeting here in Richmond, or the governor living in the executive mansion in Richmond, they're never going to bless the division of Virginia. So the Lincoln administration went to and got the permission from Mm -hmm. the restored government of Virginia uh, meeting in Alexandria. That's how they met that constitutional obligation. Sure. Um, And so I guess going back to the, the, the Union Army is coming into the city, right? This is where they're coming first, right, to the capital? Well, to Capitol Square uh, yeah. is a natural magnet uh, of attraction for incoming Union troops. Sure. Yeah. And so when they get here, they're gonna, like you said, they're going to find tons of people, right? I mean, are these people, you know, just worthless as far as the help? Or can, can they recruit some of these folks to go help the fires? Um, well, I mean, it seems like the people, you know, pe- pe- most of the people fighting the fires appeared to be men under military discipline answerable to officers okay. rather than the general population. Per okay. se. And someone, and we, we don't know who, had uh, apparently sabotaged the local fire 
uh, fighting equipment. Mm -hmm. um, you had volunteer fire companies back in those days in the sure. cities. You didn't have a standing professional fire department like we expect now. Right. But there was firefighting equipment for the city of Richmond mm -hmm. used by Richmond residents, and that had been cut and, and destroyed. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't going to be of any help. Sure. And, but, uh, and the, I'm assuming there's just papers flying around, right? Literally. These guys are also yeah. trying to get out of town and destroy the Yeah, there was, a, there was a, a sea of desolation. Uh, you found papers scattered all over the floors of the chambers within the Capitol. You found papers blowing in the wind outside on Capitol Square. Mm -hmm. uh, you found chairs upended and um, just a scene of, of chaos sure. uh, inside and outside. And and so I guess there just anytime there's an amazingly incredible event, there's always people that uh, you know falsely claim. But is there? Um, it seems like I've seen a couple different claims of those folks that say I was the one that raised the flag. Oh well, there are uh, competing stories about who raised what flag over the Capitol. But mm -hmm. what cannot be denied is that when the federal troops arrived, and originally there was a Massachusetts cavalry contingent that galloped onto Capitol Square and dismounted. Okay. Uh, you had, at that time, two flagpoles, one on the south end of the building, the portico end, mm -hmm. and one on the north end of the building, mm -hmm. which happened to be over top of the Virginia House and Virginia Senate chambers. Mm -hmm. So we have reason to believe from old illustrations that the Virginia state flag was traditionally flown from the flagpole on the north end of the building. Mm -hmm. uh, over top of the old house chamber. And a Confederate national flag during the war was traditionally flown from the South Portico flagpole, which would have been over the Hall of Congress, right, uh, the right. remodeled room for Confederate lawmakers. Mm -hmm. And what's beyond dispute is that when Union troops got up to the roof of the Capitol, they took down both the Virginia state flag and the third national pattern Confederate flag that was flying at that time. So it was actually the third national flag? It was flag? the third national flag okay. at that time. Because yeah. they had only just approved that, right? right? so it would have been a brand new flag. Sure. And this is and this is the like the um, St. Andrew's Cross um, with on a white field. And with then a red fly, a red stripe, vertical stripe on the fly end. Sure. That's right. And it's the mm -hmm. final flag that was designed for the Confederacy. And when those two flags were brought down, the Confederate national flag, which would have been deemed by northern soldiers as an illegitimate flag, right. uh, was torn up into pieces. And people were handing the pieces of that flag around, distributing them as really cool wartime souvenirs. But the Virginia state flag, even in the eyes of at least one northern officer who protected it, was a legitimate flag for a legitimate commonwealth. Sure which had, in their view, just kind of gone wrong for the last four years, but would have to be redeemed. Right. So the Virginia flag was not torn up into little right. pieces. Uh, it represented you know, a government which had done so much to create the country in happier days. Mm -hmm. So that flag was kept entire. Mm -hmm. And it's a good-sized flag. It's a huge flag. The, the, the seal uh, showing uh, the, you know, the Virtus or Wetertus uh, defeating the Tyrant King, that thing's probably about eight feet in diameter. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And it's hand-painted, double-sided. Mm -hmm. So that flag was preserved. In fact, the grandson of the federal cavalry major who had captured and protected the Virginia state flag in April 1865, that officer's grandson returned it to the Commonwealth of Virginia in the late 1920s. Wow. 
when you stand, that's a heck of a flag. <laughs> it's a heck of a flag. And it's a, an interesting eyewitness to one of the most dramatic events ever to take place on Capitol Square. Absolutely. And, and is there any kind of indication of, you know, because I know black troops come in with the Union forces. They do. Um, it seems to be, again, another thing that's conflicting of where um, I've heard that they, you know, are the leaders of, you know, taking the flag and helping, you know, are there... Others say that, you know, they just kind of came along with it. Is there, I don't know. I, I don't really know how to formulate that into a proper question, but. Well, we know that black cavalry were among the first federal troops to gain access into downtown Richmond. Okay. Uh, which caught everybody's attention. Yeah. I and uh, that uh, you had. Not, not much scarier to, to a slave owner than to see a single black person with a gun. mounted <laughs> black troopers. That would have been a change of pace, uh, you know, for a southern slaveholder, to say the least. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a, um, a clear indication that things would change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it doesn't really seem necessary to try and parse which regiment uh, got here first mm -hmm. when we know what happened in general. Sure. And that Richmond was uh, captured and the fires were put out, and order was restored using, incidentally, uh, the capital of Virginia as a military headquarters building. It was the perfect building to occupy to begin the process of reestablishing uh, re order and uh, security and peace in a now-occupied city, right. uh, as was the governor's mansion. You had federal officers moving into the capital. You had federal officers moving into the Virginia executive mansion next door. Mm -hmm. Evidently, uh, the uh, stalwart wife of William Extra Billy Smith, the first lady of Virginia, never left. And so she was upstairs while the federal officers were downstairs you know, <laughs> sharing the house. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you are a Southerner after the occupation of Richmond, and you had been in the Confederate Army, you could go to the third floor of the Virginia State Capitol and take an oath of allegiance. Oh, wow. In order to yeah. you know, start to get right with the federal authorities right. again. Uh, if you were a, uh, a Southern civilian who wanted to travel somewhere through the lines, you would come to a different portion of the State Capitol building and speak to the appropriate officer to get a military pass right. so that you could safely you know, travel. Where, to places where maybe before uh, the end of the Civil War in Richmond and Virginia, you wouldn't have dared to go. Right. Uh, if you were uh, indigent, uh, suffering from poverty and, 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 and hungry, you could go to yet another room in the Virginia State Capitol after the occupation of Richmond and literally take the oath of poverty. And having taken such oath, they could make arrangements for you to obtain relief rations. Wow, okay. So uh, the capital continues to function after Richmond is occupied by Union troops as a sort of military headquarters in, in trying to get everything put back together again. Right. And huh. they're here for several months in that capacity. Yeah, that's fantastic. By December of 1865, you have the return of a Virginia General Assembly. And is that the one that was in Alexandria? or is Well, it's, it's actually a much fuller-sized one. Right. Uh, it's now uh, a, a General Assembly, which has much more the numbers you would have expected mm -hmm. from a Virginia Assembly rather than you know a, a, a small score of delegates and senators uh, operating out of Alexandria. So it's, it's much more its normal size. The 
um, restored government governor, Francis Pierpont, who had blessed the creation of West Virginia, was brought to Richmond okay. and served for a while as a, you know, Virginia's first Reconstruction state governor. Mm-hmm. And these folks are appointed by the federal government, right? No, no. no? Uh, they had okay. been appointed by a small number of Virginia voters loyal to the Union. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think again, we've talked for a really long time. <laughs> and, 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 and we've only scratched the surface yeah, of, I think. <laughs> of, of this. But uh, I guess one thing I would add to this long-ranging conversation. And, and I didn't even realize, by the way. I, I totally just looked over there, and I was like, man, this is going on. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel like it's yeah. going on. But uh, something we didn't quite touch on that might be worth inserting somewhere mm-hmm. is when the Confederate Congress got up and running within the Virginia State Capitol building, mm-hmm. it didn't take too long for the Capitol building to become a part of the symbolism of the Confederate nation. So that in 1862, when they were designing currency, you know, mm-hmm. paper money for the Confederate nation, the $5 bill uh, sported a line drawing of the Virginia State Capitol building in the center of it. Right. Uh, as, you know, part of the design of that, of that folding money. Sure. Uh, for Confederate purposes. And as we mentioned earlier, the equestrian Washington statue on Capitol Square became at least by intent, the great seal of the Confederate nation. Sure. You had all these rallies and events taking place on the square that we did mention. Mm -hmm. And something we did not mention is that when an important political figure or an important military figure of the Confederacy died, it was not uncommon uh, to have a lying in state ceremony inside the state capitol building. And where is that happening? Uh, normally, it would be happening either in the Hall of Congress or mostly in the Hall of Congress. Okay. Because if it were a Confederate uh, figure, they wanted to have that lying in state in the room known as the Hall of Congress, sure. you know, with its Confederate associations. And in fact, I have a list here of some of the people that we know uh, were lying in state during the war years, and they include former U.S. President John Tyler. Right. Who later served in the Confederate Provisional Congress. Which someone just told me this just recently. Um, it's just fantastic trivia. Um, I don't know if... What I was told it was the only one. I don't know about the first ones. But apparently it's the, the last president to die and not have flags, U.S. flags at half-mast. Oh, wow. Because he was... That's a, worth looking into. Because he was a Confederate Congress, yeah. By the time he died. Right. Yeah. Which, But which, which the U.S. government did spring for a monument to ex-President Tyler, uh, which is now in Hollywood Cemetery. So by the 20th century... Right, so they paid for that. Much, yeah, that was yeah. much later, though, correct, yeah, right? Yeah. Right, and honoring him as a U.S. president. Right. And that's interesting because he was also... He was elected and then died just after, correct? Right. Uh, he served in the Provisional Congress okay. uh, in 1861, and then in the November general election... He was the winning candidate to take a seat in the House of Representatives, but he died before moving to that next level. Mm -hmm. And other people who had lying in states uh, were Major John Pelham, the gallant Pelham and artilleryman. Uh, General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson uh, was in the Hall of Congress. Uh, General John Hunt Morgan, a famous Confederate cavalryman, uh, also had a lying in state Mm -hmm. uh, uh, episode. And 
this continued after the war in peacetime. So when you had the peacetime deaths of people like General George Pickett or former President uh, Jefferson Davis, they uh, had lying in state ceremonies in the Virginia State Capitol uh, building. In, in the case of Pickett and Davis, it was actually in the rotunda. Okay, yeah. Rather than one of the legislative chambers. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one more thing I can think to add here is during the war itself, since the Virginia State Capitol was sort of the political centerpiece of not only the Commonwealth but of the Confederacy, mm -hmm. battlefield trophies uh, after Southern victories were often brought into Richmond and put on display inside of the Capitol building. So huh. captured U.S. flags or captured yeah. uh, military equipment or something. And so it was almost like an ersatz museum after major campaigns resulting in Southern victories where the, you know, the spoils of war would be arranged where visitors to the capital could see them. Wow, interesting. And so, it, and I guess that's actually something that just kind of clicked. But is, are there people, non-legislators? You know, nowadays we come and take tours and stuff. Mm -hmm. Are non-legislators? Oh, sure. Just, yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of uh, soldiers passing through Richmond uh, on leave would go and visit the Capitol. We have a few letters from soldiers writing as tourists. Oh, we went and saw the marble statue of George Washington in the rotunda. Right. He posed in person for it, you know, and that type of thing. So you, you literally had wartime tourism on some level. Yeah. Certainly through the square and sometimes inside the Capitol itself. And uh, you had people coming to watch sessions of the state legislature and or the Confederate Congress. Sure although the Congress had a habit of meeting in secret session repeatedly. Right. But when they weren't, you know, you had galleries for the congressmen and galleries uh, for the state right. lawmakers, too. And they were, the ladies uh, were known to fill the galleries uh, as sightseers. And, and I guess um, also, where, where are the courts? <laughs> uh, the courts, at that point, uh, the state courts, which had historically met inside the state capitol, yeah had recently been uh, relocated to the state court building, which had been created before the Civil War uh, for the state courts. And that is the building that was in the lower southeast corner of the square that unfortunately went up in smoke, ah, okay. where all the county records from surrounding counties had been sent for quote-unquote safekeeping. Right. <laughs> uh, and sadly, uh, you know, one fell swoop uh, were burnt. Uh, so, and the Confederate... Supreme Court, as I mentioned, had never organized. The district sure. courts and circuit courts of the Confederacy were meeting in other buildings within walking distance mm -hmm. of the Capitol. Well, Jefferson Davis had um, sorted out, I guess the Congress gave him permission, and then he, I, I want to say it was 1862 that habeas corpus was. Shortly after his February 1862 inauguration, where he had boasted that. Uh, habeas corpus had not been suspended in the South, whereas it had been suspended in the North, he found it necessary um, to do so uh, himself. Right. So it wouldn't have been much of a court anyways if there's... <laughs> well, I mean, there were plenty of cases that were being heard on, you know, disputed property rights and, uh, sure. and criminal cases, too. Sure. Yeah. But I guess I, I'm thinking, like, the Supreme Court is generally, in the U.S. and anyways today, it's generally something to do with the government. And if he's going to probably just say, yeah, you don't get a trial. Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, they do some stuff. Yeah, but public men had their attention focused on other issues, sure, to, to say the least. But uh, it is uh, the Capitol and Capitol Square are survivors, mm -hmm. uh, and 
when you think of the fullness of history in both war and in peace that the square and the centerpiece building have witnessed and uh, hosted and sometimes contributed to, the fact that they're still with us today, alive, well, vibrant, well cared for, um, is a testimony to you know the best ideas and ideals of government that Virginians have contributed to over the years. That you know the the, the best ideas have endured, risen to the top. Absolutely. And we're still trying uh, to carry forth this uh, amazing experiment yeah. in representative self-government. Sure. Uh, through uh, thick and thin. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I think uh, I think the last thing that's going to completely come to me randomly like this, but um, the, the is reflecting on the the Capitol, the Civil War. How do they get away with putting folks like Stonewall Jackson and Bill, Extra Billy up as monuments? Like these guys, right? Are, um, because well, Jackson, the statue of Jackson on the north side of Capitol Square Mm -hmm. was paid for by individual English citizens, uh, primarily of the gentleman class, who volunteered their own monies in a private subscription to hire an Irish sculptor, Mr. Foley, to create in England a statue of Stonewall Jackson to present as a gift Mm -hmm. to the Commonwealth of Virginia. So it was an unsolicited gift from overseas. The only... Um, obligation the English put on Virginia was, you have to pay for a pedestal. If you pay for a pedestal, we'll give you the statue. Right. And so that was back in 1875. Mm-hmm. And the Extra Billy Smith monument arose just after the turn of the 20th century. And it's one Weird. of the most wordy of the monuments. There's all kinds of text on there. Mm-hmm. And what you'll realize is he's not being celebrated first or foremost as a Confederate general or a Confederate wartime governor. They're putting his entire public resume on display on that monument for right. all the other things that he was doing uh, before and after mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Civil War, as well as including the Civil War. So you see all this public service he had uh, as an officer within the U.S. government, right? in addition to mm-hmm. um, the Confederate stuff. Thank you very much, Mark. That was it. I hope you liked that. Uh, if you If you did... Go back and check out episode 37, episode 5, you know, all with Mark Greeno. Uh, excellent, excellent times. Uh, also, let me know what you think and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you're listening. Review it for me. Let me know what you think. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest. Do all that stuff. And uh, make it a great day.